You are listening to the Fancy Free Podcast, where my girlfriends and I tell our most embarrassing, funny stories so that we all feel less alone in our imperfections. I'm Joanne Jarrett, and I'm your host. And today I have with me a new girlfriend that I met on a physician Facebook group. Her name is Sarah Reck, MD. She's an anesthesiologist. She went to medical school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, did her general surgery internship at Indiana University School of Medicine, and then her anesthesiology residency at Northwestern University School of Medicine in Chicago. She has four children. She's an avid exerciser, runner, and pelotoner. She loves spending her time with her family and traveling, and she blogs at sarahreckmd.com. She's active on Facebook and Instagram, and she writes about fitness, nutrition, medicine, and parenting. So clearly she doesn't sleep. (laughs) Sarah, (laughs) thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So fill in the blanks. What did I miss about who you are and what you do? I think you hit just about everything. So I currently practice anesthesiology in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And otherwise, I think you hit the highlights. And all four of my children are boys, which people find to be a very interesting fact about me because they think that I'm absolutely crazy. (laughs) Well, you can't really control that, can you? (laughs) Yeah, No, I can't. They keep asking me if I'm going to have another one to try for a girl. And I'm like, absolutely not. Four boys is enough. You're like, no, I think you're crazy. Yeah, exactly. I actually get that question too. I have two girls. Just the other day, I was in Dillard's getting a bra fitting because, you know, you got to, you're supposed to do that once a year. So I haven't done it right. in like 15 years. And I, I was, <laughs> I was completely gobsmacked by the way at the results, but whatever. That's probably something I should do. I don't think I've ever had a bra fitting. So that's, you know, after four kids and nursing four kids, uh-huh. that, that sounds like a recommended thing one should do. Kind of like a yearly pap smear, right? <laughs> totally. Because If you're wearing the wrong bra, not only are you not looking as flattering as you can in your clothes, but it's not as comfortable. However, I do have to say that unfortunately, the bras that I purchased are not going to work. I wore one yesterday and I've never been in such bra pain in all my life. I was like, well, if this is the way the bras (laughs) are supposed to fit, then I reject. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. The whole reason I bring that up is because the sweet gal that did my bra fitting. And by the way, if you decide to go for a bra fitting, it's not embarrassing. They just measure you around. You don't have to like stand there with your boobs out for the girl. She just can do it with you, with your bra on or even with your shirt on if you're really modest. Good to know. Yeah. And then they just bring you in a bunch of different stuff. So you don't have to go back and forth and then you find one you like. But anyway, she said, oh, oh, you have two girls. Are you going to try for a boy? I'm thinking to myself, do your eyes work? I'm 47 years old. (laughs) I am done. (laughs) Exactly. And that would be the other part of it is, you know, as a physician, you start to think about all those risks. I mean, I had my last one. I was six weeks shy of being 40. And I was like, nope, really not happening again for multiple reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another reason why you're braver than I am. Because I was like, babe, if we don't have a due date before I turn 35, (laughs) then it's not happening. I just can't. Yeah. But I do have a girlfriend from college who's 48 and pregnant with her third and everything is fine. I know. I think about her like every day. I'm like, you're so amazing. I can't imagine yeah. being pregnant right now. I feel exactly the same way. I didn't start until I was 34. And then if you have four, obviously, it takes a little bit longer. Oh, yeah. I can't even imagine starting over at this point. And my youngest is not quite two and a half. And I'm just like, oh. no, we're we're on the growing up phase now. <laughs> you're still in the throes of potty training and naps. Ugh. Yes. Yeah, that's... Yes. I'm about a decade past that, thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as you know, the point of this podcast is to share our not-so-fancy moments so that everyone listening feels less alone and can kind of nod and giggle and say, me too, and 
maybe they'll be encouraged to share their funny stories with people around them so that we just create this ripple effect of laughter and joy and connectedness. So what do you have for us today? What has happened to you that is not so fancy? So my embarrassing slash, it's funny now, it was super embarrassing at the time, goes back to when I was a CA2 resident. And just for those who either aren't in medicine or aren't familiar with the terminology, anesthesia is a four-year residency. You do a one-year internship, and then you start your PGY or postgraduate year two, you start your anesthesia. You do your PGY one year, and then your PGY two year is your CA1 or clinical anesthesia first year. So it was basically my third year of residency, but my second year of anesthesia training. I was up at our children's hospital and I hadn't been feeling well, like just had some sort of upper respiratory infection, but nothing that I wasn't going to go to work for because obviously we work through anything. Oh, yeah. I used to pray for gastroenteritis because I'm like, well, I can't work if I have that. <laughs> right, exactly. But I never got it. Dang it. Yeah. So it was you know, just enough under the weather that I didn't want to be at work, but not so much that I couldn't be. So I went and I was assigned a day of ENT, which basically consists of a lot of super fast turnover cases. So especially at a children's hospital, this can be a day of literally 12 or 15 cases because mm. they're super fast. It's like tonsils and adenoids or a lot of ear tubes. And ear tubes are literally about a 15-minute case. And we, we don't intubate the kids. We just mask them. Mm. And so it's totally non-invasive. There's zero blood. There's no IV. And I was, you know, masking the kid. They're in the middle of the case. And I passed out. Just... <gasps> passed out cold in the operating room. Kaboom. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right. My attending wasn't in there at the time because they're not all the time. They're running more than Mm -hmm. one room and I was perfectly capable of doing this case. And all operating rooms have like an emergency system. So if a patient is coding, you hit the button, a bunch of people come running in. It's a little bit different from the code system in a usual hospital because you don't want the entire code team running into the OR. Yes. But it's for the, the OR itself. So... The circulating nurse didn't know what to do. Hits the code button. I come to on the floor of the operating room with all of my attendings standing over me, staring at me. I am mortified. (laughs) Mortified. And I had felt it coming on. I think it was probably more of a vasovagal than anything else. Like I was a little dehydrated from being sick. and, And I know I had taken some sort of cold medication that probably didn't agree with me. So I come to on the floor of the operating room. The patient was fine, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I luckily passed out away from the anesthesia machine and not into it because otherwise I may have had a head injury. Uh But I'm laying there embarrassed and I'm trying to insist that I'm totally fine. I'm just a little under the weather. Can I please just have some juice and go sit down? And they insist that I have to get on a stretcher and go to the emergency room. And I'm like, no, I'm fine. I just like, I just need to rest and drink some juice. Well, they sent me to the emergency room, which again, mind you, is a pediatric emergency room. And (laughs) you're like, I'm huge. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, and the story gets worse because they wheel me to the emergency room and I get down there and... One of my best friends from medical school actually did her residency at that children's hospital. I used to play volleyball with a bunch of them. So in Saunchers, the pediatric resident who's a guy on the volleyball team I play with, and I'm like, hi. (laughs) So go through the whole story. They, They do my vitals and they're freaking out because my heart rate is 40 something because I'm training for a marathon. And 
being a pediatric hospital, anything less than 90 makes them go haywire. So they get an EKG, which freaks them all out because of my low heart rate. And then, of course, being a young female who passed out, what do you have to get? Pregnancy, a pregnancy yeah. test. You're like, oh, this is yes. So I get up, go to my pregnancy test. I'm walking back to my room in the ER with my urine sample in my hand. And the chair of the anesthesia department, who was being very kind, he was coming down to check on me, which I appreciate. He's the nicest man in the world. He also happened to be the president of the American Board of Anesthesia at the time. Wow. So I'm walking back to my room. He's coming to check on me. I bump into him. I'm holding my urine sample. I'm now even more mortified. <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't spill your urine on him. That would I know, funny. right? <laughs> I wasn't pregnant, by the way. So everything checks out, but they're still really up in arms about my heart rate. And I'm trying to insist that I'm a runner and this is fine. And I just need to go home and rest. And I have this upper respiratory infection. And they're literally talking about ambulancing me. So the children's hospital at the time was about six miles north of our main hospital downtown. And they're talking about ambulancing me down to the main hospital. And I'm like, I, like, I don't need that bill. I'm fine. Right. You're like, I am just going to have to insist that you stand down at this point. Right. Well, and I think the other issue is that I didn't really have anyone to take me home. You need to go home. They're not going to just let you drive off. Right. And I think I had even ridden my bike to work that day for whatever reason. So the pediatric resident who had come to see me called my friend that I knew from medical school. And she happened to be in clinic. And he was like, hey, can you come down and help her out? So I think he knew that I didn't really need to go to the main hospital. And so he really did a favor without telling me. So she came in and they agreed to release me if she would take me to my regular physician to follow up on this. So thank goodness they let her out of clinic. It all ended up working out in the end. <laughs> Other than the fact that I, again, was completely mortified. The chief residents both texted me later that day. Are you okay? Is there anything we can do? Can you work uh -huh. tomorrow? And I was like, I am fine, you guys. So needless to say. And I'm sensing the fact that you don't like to be the center of attention. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm an anesthesiologist. We tend to be okay with not being the one getting all the glory, but certainly in that situation. And then like, I'll never forget, you know, after the dust settled and I went back to the children's hospital, my fourth year of residency, my CA3 year. And I'll never forget. I was in the OR one day and everything was fine. And in walks my attending. He's like, I know who you are. You're the one who passed out. I'm like, no. bringing it all back. Thanks. Yep. Really? <laughs> so yeah, that it, it went down in history, but it all worked out in the end. Yeah. And now it's something that I can look back on and laugh at. And I tell the story to people and they, they certainly get a kick out of it. <laughs> my dad's a neurosurgeon and he has a scar on the bottom of his chin because when he was in medical school and they were drawing blood on each other, mm -hmm. the guy that was drawing his blood messed up and the blood started going everywhere. And my dad stood up to try to, I don't know, do something. And he hit the deck. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, that took me a while to get past the fact right. that you're the one who passes out at the sight of blood. He's like, no, it wasn't because I saw the blood. It was because I stood up and right. I'm sure he just vagled. But I have this really embarrassing overactive vasovagal reflex, which has embarrassed me probably every 10 years my entire life. Mm -hmm. It's just so annoying. So to the listeners who don't understand what that is, if you get startled or if you're in pain and your heart rate amps up, then there's this reflex that your heart can turn on that slows it down a little bit. I guess it's really designed to keep your heart from beating out of your chest or keep your heart from going so fast that it's inefficient right. for your vascular system. 
And my vasovagal reflex is bossy and overbearing. And so it'll lower my heart rate so low for like no good reason that I have to pass out. And the same <laughs> thing happens to my dad. So yeah, I'm like, gosh, I hope my kids don't inherit that because right. it's really, really inconvenient. I'll feel my heart rate go down to like 30 and it's like, I'm, I'm toast. Yeah, you know, like, I can stop it if I can put my head real low. Right. Get the blood back up yeah. there. Well, oh I know and everyone gosh. said to me too, they said, they kind of assumed that it was the sight of blood or something that made me pass out. And they're like, oh, you're not going to be a very good anesthesiologist. Yeah. And you're like, are you kidding me? So I was like, I've oh, done brother. a ton of bloody cases. There was no blood involved in what was happening. It was just a totally out there coincidence. It was a case of coincidental timing. Yes. It didn't even matter that I was in the OR. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Totally. I could have been standing in line at the grocery store and the same thing would have happened. Mm-hmm. Totally. <laughs> yes. But I've overcome that. I have not ever passed out in the operating room again. So <laughs> make sure you hydrate. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it happens. I mean, this is one of those things that our body has this built-in mechanism to level our vascular system. Right. Should we need to be leveled? Because right. the brain does not tolerate a lack of oxygen very well, yet it is right. at the top of our body. <laughs> so sometimes exactly. you just got to lay down. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry that happened to you, but I'm glad you can laugh about it now. <laughs> I know. I, I think to probably took a good month and then I was able to be like, all right, we're just going to get past this and something that happened. And you know what? Like if there's any medical students are listening, this happens to people. I have seen so many medical students come into the operating room and you're standing there for a long time and it does get warm under the lights. And if you are a little mm. bit off and you haven't eaten or had something to drink, I mean, it happens to a lot of people. I've seen attending physicians step away from the operating room table for whatever reason. And yeah, I always say it's more important to recognize that it's going to happen than to pass out flat into the field. So Yes, exactly. It happens. Medical school is a really, really crazy time where you're requiring totally unnatural things of your body Mm -hmm. because you never know when you're going to eat, sleep, or drink. Right. But yet you're required to be on the top of your game every second. Right. And I hate to admit it, but one time I was in the VA and we were doing a really long case. No, I don't think it was in the VA. It was in Vegas. And we were doing a really, really long case. And I was retracting the liver. And it's, it's hard. It's hard work. Yeah. Yeah. And they were switching. I mean, this was what it was such a long case. And I can't even remember what we were doing or any of the details, but that it was such a long case that literally the OR team switched out. Yeah. And here, here I am, the medical student. I'm just still there. Nobody care. I mean, nobody thinks to care about you. Exactly. It's okay. It's the way it is. It's what we signed up for. It, exactly. Know? And I was so tired that I literally fell asleep, had a dream, woke up, and had not moved a muscle. Mm-hmm. I was like, I was looking around like, oh my God, oh my God, oh, oh shit, oh shit. You know, <laughs> so, oh. And then I was full of adrenaline and then I was fine. But oh my gosh, mm-hmm. it's just, ooh, 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 ooh. I could have, I didn't see it coming. I'm so glad I didn't hurt anyone. But right. like nobody's, nobody's looking out for you. So you just have to kind of look out for yourself. Right. You do have to advocate for yourself a little bit. Yeah, it's crazy. What do you have in terms of life hacks for us today? Obviously, I have four small children to feed who eat a lot. I'm pretty crazy about eating healthy and make most of our meals and stuff. And with my crazy call schedule and just not always knowing when I'm going to get home, whenever I cook a meal, and I do a lot of meal prep, but anytime I cook a meal that I know can be frozen well, like macaroni and cheese, enchiladas, any sort of casserole, I double the recipe and then I freeze half of it. Nice. And it's 
a lifesaver because number one, the kitchen is getting dirty the first time anyhow. So to just double the ingredients, throw it in another Pyrex dish and then throw it in the freezer. I can tell you the number of times I've come home from work exhausted and been like, I don't feel like cooking. And we have a chest freezer in our basement. I can just walk down to the chest freezer, grab a meal, thaw it, and we're good to go. Zero dishes, zero fuss. So I would highly recommend that to anybody. It's awesome. And especially if, you know, moms, I feel like moms who are who are pregnant and having kids are always like, what should I do to prepare? I'm like, freeze meals. Freeze yourself meals. That's such a good advice. Because you're thinking, oh, I'm just going to have a baby. I'm going to be home. I'm probably going right. to be able to cook. Well, you're not going to be feeling good. You're going right. to be exhausted. And that baby is super demanding more than you can even know. <laughs> well, and the other thing I see all the time too is people saying, well, what should I give so-and-so for like a second baby gift or a third baby gift? When I had my fourth, my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law spent a day cooking. And they came over with a freezer full of meals and they shoved them in my freezer and it was a godsend. So that's what I always tell people. Yeah, it was amazing. Like I didn't need more baby clothes. I didn't need any. I'm like, this is what I needed. I needed food. What you need is help. Right. (laughs) Like concrete help. Yes. (laughs) And so that's what I always tell people. I'm like, send food, give them a Panera gift card. And that's, that's what I do. I, when people have a baby now, I cook them food. I cook one meal to eat tonight and one meal to put in the freezer. Oh, that's awesome. You know what I think is another really good baby gift is grocery delivery. Yes. If you live in a, an urban area, mm-hmm. Shipped, S-H-I-P-T, I think is one of the companies. Of course, I, I don't have access to that yeah. out here. And you can get groceries delivered from anywhere. Like yeah. even if you're on vacation and you're staying in a hotel suite, you can get groceries delivered to your hotel suite. So Your Instant Cart too, I think, because they deliver from Target, Walmart, all those places. Yeah. Yeah. And you can get anything like you can get diapers and stuff. It's almost like Amazon Prime. Yes. Even I living way out in the middle of nowhere, I do my groceries now on walmart.com and then I drive up and, you know, reschedule it to get delivered. And I'm like, if I'd have had this when my babies were young, it would have been, life would have been way easier. For sure. Yeah. What have you been loving lately that you think the listeners might love too? So I have two things. The first one is a book that I actually just started reading last night. It's called The Latte Factor. And I heard about it. I was listening to Rachel Hollis's podcast because I'm a podcast listener in the car when I'm commuting. I get bored with the radio. And so I listen to Uh podcasts all the time. So I was listening to Rachel Hollis's podcast, Rise. And she had David Bach, who's the author of this book, on. He's a financial advisor by training, but now he's gone off and done a lot of his own things. And he's written a couple of books. And it's basically like teaching people how to think about money differently. And the book is a super easy read. I'm almost done with it. But as physicians, we always say we don't get taught finances. Yeah. And we come out with all these loans. And, you know, I'm lucky I have a business minded husband and we have a financial advisor. But he dumbs it down to a way that I can read it and be like, that totally makes sense. And it's called The Latte Factor because it follows this young girl. She's 27 who is struggling with her finances. She lives in New York City and she meets this gentleman who owns a coffee shop and he starts teaching her about money. And he, he says, you know, like, if you want to buy this, it's your latte factor. Basically saying, you know, add up all of your extraneous expenses in a day. You buy a coffee every day, a muffin every day. You're buying lunch, you're buying water. That's like $25. And if you put even half of that into a 401k pre-tax, like this is how much money is going to end up being after X amount of years. And Mm. again, all stuff that I know, but it was just put in a fashion that it really made sense to me. And I think for anybody 
young in college who doesn't understand money, who doesn't understand the concept of a 401k and pre-tax versus post-tax, or even how a small amount of money will make a huge difference over a long period of time. Really, really good book. And like I said, super easy read. I'll finish it tonight, probably. Highly recommend. Okay, that's going to be my new, we're having a gift theme here, apparently. That's going to be my new either college or high school graduation gift. Yes. Along with, you know, you can get that book and then you can write them a check and the check can be the bookmark. But it's like, (laughs) here's the money and here's some advice on how to do with this money the proper thing. I love it. Oh my gosh. Exactly. And it's, and it's the nice thing is that it's, it's very digestible amounts of money. He's not saying take a thousand dollars and put it aside. So it becomes this. He's literally saying, $25 a day. So absolutely. Okay. I'll link to that book in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. And then the other one I was going to mention, I'll just mention this really quick. The podcast Reconciling Medicine, Dr. Renee Paro does it with her husband, Dr. John Paro. They just talk about how they've quote unquote reconciled medicine with their lives and how they've managed to find balance. And they talk about a lot of other topics as well. They talked about the opioid crisis a couple of weeks ago. They just have a really nice rapport with each other and they're fun to listen to. And so it's a great podcast for pre-medical students who are kind of wanting to listen to people's journey through medicine. They have upbeat personalities, but they're very upbeat on that medicine to come. I feel like there's a lot of downtrodden doctors right now, and they just are really trying to put it in the context of a lot of this is what you make of it. So it's a nice listen. It comes out on Friday mornings. It's called Reconciling Medicine, and I would give it a listen. Awesome. Okay. I'll link to that one in the show notes too. Okay. Do you think if somebody's not in medicine, that would be interesting too, or is that more niche for people who are in medicine? It can go both ways, and you can certainly pick and choose. I mean, they talk a little bit about medical school and how they made choices in residency and the couples match. The first season was a little bit more about their journey to where they are now. They're both attending physicians. This season has been some other topics that aren't necessarily just related to medicine. So yeah, I think it could go either way. If you want to hear two doctors talking about something that's going on right now, it'd probably be really interesting, Yeah, even for a non-medical person. Yeah. Awesome. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? It's more of a life lesson. I had this attending when I was a third-year medical student. I was on my internal medicine rotation at the VA, which I hated, by the way. I'm not an internal medicine person, but I give props to everybody who is. But at any rate, he used to make us sit down at the end of the day and we would do paper rounds and just go through and talk about all the patients. And one of the things he always said to us is, as we went around, you have to tell me one thing you learned from this patient. And of course, as a third-year medical student, you're racking your brain for like the most significant medical piece of information that this patient has taught you. You know, they're, oh, I learned all about creatinines from this patient or what sepsis is from this patient. And he always said, no, I don't want you to tell me something you learned medically. I want you to tell me something the patient taught you. So it was really more of a lesson of the idea that everyone has something to teach you. And it was really hard to do because you wanted to focus on the medical side of it. Mm -hmm. But it was more like this patient taught me humility or this patient taught me how to die peacefully or, you know, like these things that Mm -hmm. are really big lessons that are hard to put a grasp on as a medical student because you're trying so hard to learn that in medicine. And this just always stuck with me. Sometimes you have to step aside and really look at what someone's teaching you. And even like your kids, right? Like you look at your kids and you're like, there's so much you can teach me. The joy you see in life or the way you see things. So I think just this idea that everyone has something to teach you, you just have to look for it. And that's always stuck with me. Like I'll never, I'll never forget sitting in that 
room in the VA every afternoon and you would dread it because you'd be like, oh my God, I have to think, well, this patient taught me. You're trying so hard to learn medicine and do well and get the A on the rotation. Looking back on it, it was a really good lesson because you start to see those little things that that make you remember that patients are people too, and they're not just mm-hmm. a number on the paper. Kind of always causing you to go back to the human right. side of things. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. I think we could remember that in just all of our interactions. Mm-hmm. Back to the latte thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. even like when you drive up to a coffee hut and you're ordering coffee from someone, just to look at a person mm-hmm. in terms of being someone who has something to teach you, somebody right. who has a wealth of human experience that is different from yours. That's, right. Yeah, that's super valuable. What is one surprising thing about you nobody would be able to tell just by looking? For five years after high school and throughout my college years, I worked at a summer camp for kids with disabilities in northern Wisconsin. You know, so many people who are going into medicine work in the lab or they do hospital volunteering. But my sister had worked at this camp. And so I started working at it the year after I graduated high school and ended up working there for five summers. And we served kids with cognitive disabilities. So a lot of Down syndrome kids, blind kids, and then also deaf and hearing impaired kids. So I actually know a little bit of sign language. My skills are very poor right now. (laughs) It's just not something people ever think of anybody doing, I think, because they probably don't think these kinds of camps exist. And it it was obviously a great experience because I spent five years working there. It's funny now because one of the girls that I was her counselor when she was six years old is now married. And we kind of keep in touch on Facebook Mm. because she interestingly grew up like literally two miles down the road from where I live now. And so it's just kind of a neat full circle to see how she's thrived and she's doing Mm -hmm. great. She has gone back to work at this camp. I think for the people who have been there, it really is a profound experience and something that I'll never forget. And I'm glad that I did, even though it wasn't the typical pre-medical student thing to do. I think that's a great little golden nugget for people who are considering going into medicine. If you don't have time to fit something into your school year, that is a volunteering situation. How enriching would that be for your life or, and for the life of the kids at a camp if you could just spend some time right. volunteering at, or even working, it wouldn't even have to right. be a volunteer position at a special needs camp. What a great, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, and I think it also goes to show that you don't have to do the typical thing. I mean, I think so many people, oh, I have to work in the lab. I have to do the volunteering. I have to do this. And I have mm-hmm. to, and really that gave me something to talk about in interviews where I'm sure that the people interviewing had heard oh, about yeah. a million people working in a lab. It's something different. And it makes you stick out in their mind a little bit. I don't interview medical students anymore. But when I did, it was, you know, it was always that person who had a little bit different of a story that you remembered because everybody else is cookie cutter. So it's actually okay to stick out a little bit. That's a really great idea. Wonderful. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being with me today. This was really fun. Yeah, it was really fun. (laughs) I'm no longer a a podcast newbie. So I feel good about that. (laughs) Now you're a pro and I think you're a natural. And so I definitely think it's a good way to expand your readership for your blog. Yeah, I'm excited. Tell the listeners how to find you online. My blog is just my name, www.sarahreckmd.com. And I blog about mostly about being a working mother, but within the context of kind of fitting in workouts, how not to feel guilty, being away from your kids, healthy eating, that type of thing. I'm also on Instagram and that's also Sarah Reck MD. 
And then I also have a Facebook page for my website is Sarah Rack MD Finding Your Fantastic. I kind of double post on Instagram and there just to put it in both places. Awesome. So if you want to find me, that's where you can find me. And I love to answer questions about being a mom and a mom in medicine and working and breastfeeding and nursing and pumping and all that great stuff. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Fancy Free Podcast. I just love talking with Sarah. It was so much fun to reminisce about medical school and medical training. And if you happen to have someone who is considering going into medicine, share this episode with them. You can just go to whatever podcast app you're using, and there's usually a share function where you can just text or email the link to the episode right to the person. Because I think she had not only some really fun insight into training, but also some good tips as far as things that you can do to set yourself apart when you're applying for medical school. Make sure to check out the show notes for today's episode number 57 at fancyfreepodcast.com slash episode 57 to get all of the links that we discussed in today's show so that you can learn more about Sarah. Also, listen to the Crazy First Date compilation episode at fancyfreepodcast.com slash date three to find out how Sarah met her husband. She tells that story on that episode, and it's called 13 Crazy First Date Stories. Next week on the show, we have Audra Powers, who you may remember from 13 Crazy First Date Stories. She told us a story that combined the most amazing coincidence with the best first date, and that is just a story not to be missed. But on her feature episode next week, she has a funny story about a parking lot fiasco when she was trying so hard to make a good first impression. And you're just going to love hearing more from Audra. If you have a story to tell, email me at notfancy at fancyfreepodcast.com. And if you want more connection, laughter, and sharing, please join our Fancy Free Facebook group. We have so much fun laughing together and connecting over there. The question of the week this week is, have you ever passed out? And if so, what happened? I'd love it if you'd follow the Fancy Free Podcast on Instagram and tell at least one friend about the show this week. Have a wonderful week. And remember, no one is as fancy as they look. <laughs>